Welcome to the Smeichel Speaks podcast channel. I'm Joanne Smeichel, and I'm delighted that you tuned in for relevant leadership learning that will help you continue to soar. Enjoy this episode. There's a classic Harvard Business Review article that's a must read for all leaders. The title is The Work of Leadership, and that really sums up the theme of the article. The authors are Ronald Heifetz and Donald Lorry, and they do a great job presenting five really critical leadership responsibilities. I was reviewing those responsibilities, and I started reflecting on what's transpired between 1997, when the article was written, and today. I came to a conclusion. My conclusion is that those five critical responsibilities still have a lot of utility. They're grounded in adaptive leadership, a competency that I think is really important to develop. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to review the five competencies in just a minute. And I'll tell you that when I review them, I'll be providing my own editorial comments. And that's because I think that the competencies are worth considering, but they are not the gospel on leadership responsibilities. I came to another conclusion, and that is that there are six more responsibilities that are must-dos for leadership now. After I go through Heifetz and Lori's original five, I'll introduce my six. My thought is that if you put their five together with my six, you'll have a sound foundation for leading with maximum impact and with positive impact. The first of their five is direction. Now, this one's pretty obvious. It's about steering the course. In a routine environment, this means defining problems and providing solutions. That was their original premise. But in reality, we know that smart leaders collaborate on both problem definition and solution generation. In an adaptive environment, leaders frame questions and issues. Now, I like this element that Heifetz and Laurie put forward for direction. It's important for leaders to get comfortable posing questions, especially the uncomfortable, difficult questions that make people think and even make people squirm a little. Leaders who can use questions well are able to draw out the insights from other people, and that's how issues get addressed in a way that engages stakeholders and creates ownership for the solutions. I wanna move to the second, and that's protection. Ideally, in a routine environment, the leader should be able to shield the organization from external threats, that's what they say. And I don't know that I agreed with this when the article was originally written, and I know I don't agree with it now. I think that the very idea of a leader or leaders being able to shield an organization is totally unrealistic. It positions the leader as a sort of superhero. Now, here's what Heifetz and Lori say about protection in an adaptive environment. They say that leaders should let the organization feel external pressures within an acceptable range. I don't agree with that much either. Here's what I know. Organizations get beat and battered in ways that they never imagined possible. It might be from negative press, from global pandemics, from endless litigation, from product recalls, from losses of consumer confidence, or any number of other crises. 
We know that most pressures often can't be kept within an acceptable range. The best a leader can do is to create an environment where dialogue is fluid about the pressures and where people are invited to craft appropriate and effective responses. I also think that there's a lot of value in being preemptive and considering a lot of different worst-case scenarios and going through some fire drills with the executive team. I think there's a lot of value in preparing senior leaders through the use of simulations. For instance, if you're in post-acute care, it's common to prepare for what they call surveys. These are inspections. What about taking that one step further and preparing for natural disasters or preparing for an onslaught of negative press because of a mistake that you made that caused several people to die? My feeling is that preparation is always better than protection. Always, always, always. I think it's important to prepare people, particularly leaders, for worst-case scenarios. You know, we can't prepare for every catastrophe, but we can certainly prepare through action learning, through simulations, and other structured activities that immerse leaders in various scenarios. Heifetz and Laurie present orientation as the third critical leadership responsibility. I'm in total agreement here. In routine environments, leaders have to clarify roles and responsibilities throughout the entire organization, especially with managers and supervisors. And when they're in adaptive environments, they have to challenge roles and help people redefine how they do what they do to meet evolving needs. As I said, this is where I totally agree. Leaders have to be able to help people understand why they do what they do and how their roles evolve based upon the evolution of the organization. So the next one is managing conflict. This is an area where I'm in partial agreement. Let me tell you what they say, and then I'll add a little bit to it. They say that in the routine world, leaders have to restore order, but that in an adaptive or changing environment, leaders have to expose conflict and position it as a force that can yield innovation, new insights, creativity. You know, I've continued to think about this, and I'll tell you, I'm ambivalent. I'm not sure that I believe that leaders have to restore order. I tend to think that leaders have to allow healthy conflict to emerge and then guide people in restoring order themselves. If a ceasefire is imposed by a leader, it probably isn't going to last. Now, I do agree with their contention that leaders need to surface the conflict. I think that they then have to work with the people to determine whether the conflict is healthy or not. If it's malignant, that has to be addressed and dealt with. If it's a healthy conflict, it can really add to the innovation and the creativity that Heifetz and Laurie suggest. In both cases, in all cases, no leader can afford to simply ignore conflict and pretend it's going to go away on its own because it's not. The last of their five is shaping norms. I really like this one, but again, I don't entirely agree with them. They say that in routine environments, leaders maintain norms and that in adaptive environments, they challenge unproductive norms and shape norms that help the organization grow. Here's what I think. 
I think norms should be co-created. I feel really strongly that the people who will be living the norms should be partners in their creation. I also think that norms evolve as organizations evolve. That means that leaders have to pay attention to emerging norms, and they need to be sure that they're in alignment with the organization's core values. I don't believe that norms are ever fixed or cast in stone. They can and they should evolve. They can and they should be collaboratively created. All right, we covered their five leadership responsibilities, and now let's get to my six. (laughs) You might be thinking, why does she get six and Heifetz and Lori only get five? Well, it's my podcast. Leaders can't lead without followers. That's the reason that mobilizing commitment is the first of the critical leadership responsibilities that I want to contribute and discuss. I'm not talking about a lot of hype and rah-rah-rah. I'm talking about partnering with followers to create a culture in which people want to invest their time and energy. I'm talking about creating an environment where work is challenging and the working conditions allow and even encourage people to flourish. What does it take to create commitment? We have to understand and believe in the organization's goals and its values. When this belief is deep, employees accept the goals and values, and they decide to live into them. Now, the operative word here is decide. People have the choice to commit. The leader's job is to create the culture and the environment where the majority of the people really do want to commit. The next thing that's important for building commitment is building each person's desire to actually do the work of the organization. That means that nobody can be asleep at the wheel or retired on the job. You, as the leader, have to demonstrate a commitment to doing the work and not just talking about it. The last piece I want to add about commitment is that it's one of the factors that indicate a desire to stay with an organization. There's a relationship between commitment and healthy retention. When you raise the level of commitment, you raise the level of engagement, and you raise the level of retention. Okay, let's move to my next one. Honoring humans. I know this sounds basic, but it often gets overlooked. Leaders often put way too much emphasis on goals and on getting things done, but nothing gets done without the people who make it happen. You've got to take time to celebrate accomplishments, and I'm not talking about in a surface way. I'm talking about in a meaningful way that shows that you understand the individuals who are doing the work and the effort that they put in. Other ways that we honor humans is by recognizing their diversity. And I mean diversity of race, gender, sexual identity, age, national origin, religion, ethnicity, ways of thinking, political orientation. I'm talking about a broad understanding of what's meant by diversity. Honoring humans, it really requires the ability to model One of the components of transformational leadership. If you've been listening to my podcast, you know that I am stuck on transformational leadership. That component is 
individualized consideration. My take on this is that it happens when the leader makes the time to get to know the individuals and to tap into what makes them unique, their skills, their abilities, their interests. If you can tap into that, you can help them get things accomplished. Individualized consideration is all about making human connections that are both sincere and sustainable. So next up is living in alignment with values. This is one of the foundations of trust. It assumes that each and every one of us, each and every leader, has clarity on our core values. Values are really the focal point that keep us on track in a way that honors our conscience. They're the principles that keep all aspects and elements of our lives in alignment with our deepest beliefs. People often talk about being able to speak your truth and to use your voice. I think that bringing your values to the fore doesn't actually begin with finding and using your voice. I believe that it starts with discovering your values. I stay amazed by the huge number of people who go through life on autopilot. There are so many people who have accustomed themselves to being numb, to performing without clear purpose. In order to live in alignment with our values, we have to stop, reflect, and do the work to surface or unearth what's fundamental in our belief system. In my work with leaders, I'm always surprised at how few can actually articulate their values. Many of these people have not ever thought seriously about their core values. We so often function at these frenetic, crazy paces that we don't stop and reflect on what matters most. So getting to the point of discovering our deeply held values, though we may never have spoken them, It requires quiet, persistent reflection. The reflection is what allows us to deepen our self-awareness and our self-knowledge. Mary Gentile is the author of Giving Voice to Values, and here's what she says. She says, values-based action comes from the alignment between our self-knowledge and our self-image. And it's that alignment that allows for consistent, committed, courageous action. But the action can't happen unless and until you have an understanding of the values that drive you. Bend and flex. That's the next one I'm putting forward as a critical leadership responsibility. If you're rigid, you're in deep trouble. The world keeps shifting and morphing all around us. Every time you get one thing mastered, it changes and you have to move on to the next. You have to be able to adapt and to adapt quickly. Let me tell you what I mean when I say you're in deep trouble if you can't. A huge, huge, huge telecommunications company has refused to allow teleworking. And this is not a fictitious case study. This is something that's happening right now today. The CEO doesn't like the concept, and he is adamant that he's not going to permit it. 
when the HR executive um, noticed and brought to his attention that they are losing a lot of good people to their competitors and that she suspects it's because of this ridiculous, arcane telework policies, he was still adamant. What she noticed and brought to his attention is that the companies they're going to not only have telework options, they also have more flexibility in their approach to human capital utilization. And he's still not listening, and they're still losing people. People sometimes tell me that it's just that their nature to be flexible, that they like routines, and they'll say, how do I develop or cultivate flexibility? I suggest a few things, and they're They're relatively simple things, but they can challenge you if you are truly, truly rigid. So the first thing I suggest is to add a few people to your personal and professional mix who do things totally different from you. Start having conversations with them about their approaches and the rationale behind them. Then I want you to try this. Select just one of their approaches and test it three times. Be conscious and be intentional when you're testing it. Don't be judging it, just experience it. Now, after you've tested it three times, I want you to pick one more of their approaches and test that three times. See, the more you test, the more you'll see that different isn't deficient. It's also not fatal to try new approaches. The important thing is to test an approach more than once. It's also important to push past the initial discomfort. And that's why I say try it three times. The next thing you have to do to be able to bend and flex is to identify one thing. And I mean just one thing that you're willing to change. It may be how you conduct meetings. It may be a specific process. It may be how you give feedback. Heck, it can be something as simple as your haircut. Whatever it is, change it. You have to start somewhere, so just pick one thing and make the change. It's not easy to change our natural inclinations, but it is necessary for anybody in a leadership role to develop the capacity to see from multiple perspectives and to adjust, and often to adjust quickly. If you know you're rigid, start trying these little small experiments and see if that helps you build a little flexibility. Next, I want to address courage. Model courage. This week, I had a conversation with a physician who was serving on an evaluation team to rate trainees. She observed a pattern where people of color and women were repeatedly getting lower ratings from two of the five faculty reviewers. She also noticed that the language that these two were using to describe the physician trainees was clearly reflective of their biases. For example, one of the women trainees was described more by her gender than by her medical competence. And it was interesting to note that All of these trainees of color had excelled, had excelled academically, were, you know, top students until they got to this subjective review process. This doc said that she was losing sleep over this evaluation process. It was causing her a lot of stress. And as she kept processing the situation, 
she decided that she needed to summon up her courage to address her observations. One of the things that she knew was that tackling this was a huge risk. But when she started examining her core values, she knew she had to take the risk. Now, her sense from working with these docs was that they weren't openly bigoted, but that they were really unaware of their own predispositions. She thought that they were good people with blind spots. Speaking of blind spots, she decided to introduce the book, Blind Spots, Hidden Biases of Good People. She decided to introduce that book to the entire evaluation team. I'm going to repeat the title so you get it and can jot it down and get the book for yourself. It's called Blind Spots, Hidden Biases of Good People. And I should be able to tell you who wrote it, but I'm not sitting at my desk, so I can't turn around and reach for it. But you can find it on Amazon or somewhere at your local bookstore. She decided that this issue of unconscious bias and blind spots was one of the things that she's going to champion to raise the level of cultural competence in her organization. There are many, many, many very sensitive, very difficult issues that need to be addressed. The range of these issues is broad and deep. They range from individual to individual and organization to organization. The common thread is that courage, intestinal fortitude, bravery, and the commitment to act on one's core values, that's the hard work that has to be done. Okay, my last one, my number six, is pipeline planning. As you evolve in your leadership role, it should be very apparent that for any organization to survive, it has to have a well-developed talent pool. This means cultivating leaders at all levels. It means preparing a diverse pool of potential and talent. It means coaching people so that they can discover and fulfill their potential. Now, I want you to be careful of confusing pipeline planning with what I call the heir apparent syndrome. That's when one person is pre-selected for a role in the future. It's assumed that they're the best choice So all of the resources go into preparing that person. Mm -mm, That's not pipeline planning. A pipeline allows an organization to thoughtfully develop many people for many roles. It offers developmental opportunities much more equitably. It also allows many different people to demonstrate their skills and to develop new competencies. The goal in pipeline planning is to fully develop talent throughout the organization. And this happens with very thoughtful planning and a good, strong human capital utilization strategy. Now I want to wrap up. The 11 leadership responsibilities are good for today and will prepare you and your organization for tomorrow. Take the time to assess your abilities in each of the areas. Invite your colleagues to do the same. Create a cadre of people who are interested in leadership growth. Having this cohort is what will enable you to get different insights and to draw on different experiences. I want you to commit not only to paying attention to developing in each of the other 11 areas, but also to helping other people grow. That approach, that's the cascade. 
that helps the entire organization. And that's your leadership responsibility to help the entire organization. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope you got tools that you'll actually use and share. Subscribe if you haven't already. I add new and relevant leadership learning all of the time. If you haven't visited the Smichael Speaks YouTube channel, check it out. There's all sorts of new content. All of this is virtual leadership learning that will help you soar.